Hi, we are in the midst of looking at Matthew chapter 5 to 8. It's basically called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, if you go to Luke. And the idea is that in this three chapters is really some of the most basic teachings of Jesus, of when he's trying to say, how do you live your life and how can you live your life? And I'm going to skip a little bit around because I feel that at this time in our history with Ukraine and Russia facing off with the polarization in our society, I wanted to look at one particular part of this Sermon on the Mount, this particular part that Jesus teaches. And the part I'm going to look at uh, with you is Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to verse 48. And it says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and on the good and causes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, uh, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's quite a passage. So I'm going to break it down for you uh, verse by verse and have you understand a little bit more about each of these very incredible verses. And he he says in the very beginning, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And notice the word that's used there as you have heard it. It wasn't written in the Torah. It wasn't written in any of the Hebrew scripture books, the Old Testament. But was written there is very, is similar, but it's not that idea of love your neighbor and hate your enemies. What Leviticus says Chapter 19, verse 18, is this. Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the Hebrew scriptures, as you might remember from my Hebrew course that I gave earlier on in this iPod, uh, this uh, podcast, is the idea that Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your own people, meaning you have to love and care for other fellow Jews, your own people, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by neighbor here, they meant a fellow Jew. And most people remember this passage, and this is to the Jews, something very common to understand, that you should love other Jewish people because you're all Jews together. But it's interesting that Leviticus doesn't stop there. Just 20 verses later, in verse 33, it says, When an alien resides with you in your land, do not mistreat such a one. You shall treat the alien who resides with you no different than the native born among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So even in Leviticus, it takes it to another point. 
First, it emphasized you should love your neighbors, your, your own race, your other Jews. But then it also goes in your aliens, meaning the non-Jewish people. So if there are any non-Jews living in your area, you also have to love them. So in Judaism, loving of the neighbor and loving of the alien, people who are not necessarily Jewish, was thought of as very important. But Jesus adds in his verse 43, this idea, and it was told to you or you heard it, hate your neighbor. Well, hate your neighbor was not a direct commandment in the 613 laws of the Torah. But of course, it was said in different parts of the Hebrew scriptures about killing your enemies and getting rid of your enemies and stuff like that. Jesus now is making an incredible important point. But I say to you, love your enemies. What a crazy idea. Love your enemies. Nowhere else is this portrayed quite as directly as loving of your enemies. And most people, when they hear it, they think this is crazy. And a lot of people, when they reject Christianity, say, who can do this? Who can love your enemies? This is an extremely difficult thing to do. And it's very difficult to do today. To, to love somebody is a very difficult experience. But what sort of love are we talking about? And that's the important thing we first have to get to, is what love are we talking about? The word that is used here in Matthew's gospel is agape, and that is translated love. But there are five other words in Greek that also can be translated love. But each of these words takes on a different idea. It takes on a different nuance of meaning. So I'm gonna go over those five other words because what agape love is, what Jesus is saying about loving your neighbor is different than what the other five words connotate about love. Well, the first word that we're going to take a look at in Greek is eros. Eros is the idea of erotic love. It's when you fall in love with somebody, that you want to have sex with that other person. You feel very joined together. You really want to experience totally that other person. So eros or erotic love is one kind of love, but that's not agape love. The next word in Greek is filial. And filial love, again, is more like French's love or love between a, a parent and a child, all right? It's, it's this idea that you care about this other person. You have a great deal of emotion tied up in this other person. And that, again, is not agape love. Mania is the third word in the Greek. And mania, is a base word that we sometimes use, maniac. That guy is a maniac. He's so crazy in love with me. And that love in mania is basically what we talk infatuation. You really don't know the person, but you saw them, you looked at them, you heard them speak, you heard them sing, and you became obsessive with them. 
You became like a maniac. You stalk them. You want to be near them. You want to try to be in, in their lives, all right? But maniac or mania love, this total infatuation love, that's not agape either. The next Greek word is pragma. And pragma is a bit that pragmatic love, all right? That, you know, over a long term, this love that will, will grows and embraces and lasts forever and signals a great commitment. It's a love sometimes in Filler of the Roof is my greatest example of that, where Tevye is trying to fix his daughter up with a, a man that he wants her to marry, the butcher, because he'll be able to provide food, he'll, she'll have a good life, but she's in love with the tailor. She's in love with another guy. And Tevye wants to point out, but practically speaking, it's better for you to marry the butcher. And practical love is something that also happens to people. We say that this will work, I can put up with this nonsense and that nonsense because the benefits are gonna outweigh the problems. But that isn't agape love, all right? Ludos, the fifth Greek word, is this idea of playful love, of enjoying other people, of kidding around with other people, of feeling connected with other people. And that's a, that's a great love too. It's a, it's a lot of fun. You like to be with people who are doing ludos love. You want to have a good time with them. But that isn't agape love. Agape love, which I'm going to try to now explain with the help of a book that I think is absolutely phenomenal. And it's called Doing the Truth in Love, Conversations About God, Relationships, and Service. It's written by a man named Michael J. Himes, H-I-M-E-S. And Michael wrote this while he was a professor out at Notre Dame College. And he wrote it in cohorts in, in a, with other students and faculty members that he was working with on, on this project. And what he tries to do here is help us to understand what is agape love. When Jesus says, love your enemies, what is that? And we have to be very much aware it's not eros or filial or mani or pragma or ludos love. It's what we call agape love. That is different than those other ideas of love. St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians in the Catholic Church, defined love as the effective willing of the good of the other. The effective willing of the good of the other. And if you translate agape, when it was translated into Latin, they usually use the word caritas, all right? Now this agape love is very different than all the other types of love we're talking about. Thomas's definition describes love as an act of the will. Love is a choice we make. And that's very important to keep in mind, that love is a choice we're going to make here. That's very different 
from the way we think and often talk about love, most of the time in our culture. We talk about falling in love, about love hitting you like a big pizza pie, Cupid's arrow going into you, all right? But we, we talk about this love as something that is happening to you. Love is an activity into which you enter willingly. Thomas Aquinas is talking about love as a decision, as a choice. Emotions, fascination, mania, uh, pragma, eros, all right? All of these attractions, desires, emotions may hit you. And sometimes being hit, you may be feeling perfectly wonderful. But such emotions are at most an accompaniment to love. They, they they're something that goes along with love. But at the core of agape love is to will the good of another in such a way that you can make it effective. You will make real and active the good for the other. To paraphrase St. Thomas, agape love is willing the good of the other person and acting to make that good real for him or her. We really want to make the person good, all right? We want that person to have real good that will affect them. I'm going to read a little paragraph here. Unless we understand love in some such way, much of the gospel sounds like absolute nonsense. For example, how else can one possibly understand Jesus' command, love your neighbor? If one thinks of love as tender and affectionate emotions, then the command is crazy. One will not regard one's enemies with tender, warm affection, no matter how much we try to twist one's emotion or lies to oneself. Indeed, if one takes love to mean be affectionate towards, then the command may be even immoral. For if the enemy is unjust, one ought not to be affectionate towards one who acts unjustly. But if one understands that affection is an occasional accompaniment of this form of love, but that the core of the love is always the active willing of the good of the other person. Then it may be difficult to love one's enemy, but it's not nonsense. The command of Jesus is that one actively, with all the good of all persons, not just one's neighbor, but also one's enemy, we have to will the good for them. Your enemy may be unjust, may be undeserving of affection, may hate you for attempting to bring about his or her good, but you must still act in that way. It is not a question of how you feel, but what you choose and how you act, right? This is the idea that we're trying to get across. Love is something which happens to you rather than a choice you make, an act that you choose. That would be a terrible thing. If you think of love as something that you fell into, and then you can fall out of love. And that is an agape love. It's not this big emotional moment. 
But this love requires two qualities. The first is wisdom. You can never know with certitude what the true concrete good for the other is. You must always try to perceive what that concrete good may be so that one can act to bring it about. Recognizing that you may be wrong, you, may, you must be ever ready to revise your ideas of what the other's good is. You have to be wanting to say, what is the good that sh should be happening in this person's life? The second quality Michael points out is courage. Courage is required because when you discern as wisely and as carefully as you can what you, to, what you believe to be the other's good, it may not be what the other wants at the moment. And he gives a great example. He says, you have your child and he wanders into the kitchen and your child is moving towards the stove. He's got his hands outstretched. He wants to touch the stove. But you know that if he touches it, he's going to get burnt. All right. And you grab the child. You pull his hand away and you don't let him get burnt. You, you say, this is the good for you right now, not to touch that stove because evil will happen to you. You will be in great pain. From the child's point of view, though, from the child's point of view, you are a monster because you won't let the child do what the child wants. From the point of view of the parent, pulling the child's hand away from the stove was an act of love. The, per the parent discerned that what was best for the child and acted to achieve it. Loving agapically is a very tough business because we constantly have to take a look at what is the good for this other person? What, what will help that other person to change and grow and develop correctly? And if you do not like what they hear from you, and I, but I love you so much, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. You can be furious with me. We stop the child from touching the stove because we don't want the child to hurt himself. We don't mind that he gets mad at us, that yells at us, that kicks us, that pushes us, because what we want to do is help the child in our wisdom and our courage. We notice what is the genuinely good for that other person. Martin Buber called it this I thou, that we have to realize that we are eyes and thous, that we're two people trying to meet each other. I want to share with you a story at this point about an agape love moment that I felt I was working on. When I was running a nonprofit, I spent about five or six months writing a grant to the state to build houses for homeless families. And by the time the grant was done, it was like a telephone book, a huge, huge book, hundreds and hundreds of pages. It took me forever to write it, to get all the information that I needed for this project and get it out there. And I sent this into the state, hoping to get uh, the money to build a, a number of houses. And then I was going to go away for the summer. I call up the state and ask them, because they said one of the things that they're going to do is come down for a site visit, visit the nonprofits, see what we've done, 
what we're going to do, where we're at with this project. And I was assured they wouldn't be coming down while I was away. So I take off a couple of weeks. I come back and I walk in and I'm going through the mail with my secretary. And I can tell she's very nervous. She, she wants to tell me something, but she's holding back. So I finally say, Eileen, what? What is it? What, what, what happened? Why, why are you so upset? She says, well, that woman from the state came. She, even after I told her, she said she wouldn't come in the first, the two weeks you're away. I told her you were still away. She said, no, she needs to come out now. And I got a few of the board members together and they uh, tried to present as best they could what our project was. And uh, she said, no, 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 no. And in fact, she said, it's always struck me, unless Peter's God, you're not getting a penny. And with that, she left. So now I come back and, they, she t and my secretary tells me this story. And I was furious at this woman. Her name was Doris. And I was absolutely livid against her. I mean, you talk about the enemy. She was my number one enemy at that time. I thought nothing of loving her. I just couldn't believe she did this. And I called up and I begged her to come out again, let me go over the project with her, show her, answer her questions. But she said, no, you haven't had any, enough experience. We're not going to give you any money. And of course, how can you have experience if nobody will give you money? This is often a, a ploy that many people use. So I stewed about this for a while and I decided I really have to show her that we can do this project, but she won't even come out. How can I get her to come out? So I started visiting all the state senators and assembly people that, lit, that were on Long Island. And when I told them that there was this $10 million pot of money given away every year to help the homeless by the state, but not one penny of it ever came to Long Island. Well, they went, they weren't that maybe that sold on helping the homeless, but they were definitely sold on the idea if money is given away by the state, some of it should be coming to Long Island. So they started writing letters to Doris's boss, telling them they wanted our project looked at again and see what they could do. So this went on for a couple of weeks and then I, I get a call from Doris. She says, all right, all right, I'll come out again. We'll talk and we'll see what happens. But you got to stop these letters. My boss is really upset. All these senators and assemblymen are writing him. So I asked, well, how many letters have you gotten so far? So two or three. I said, well, you're going to get a couple more, but then I won't do any more as long as you come out and we work to, on this together. Anyway, the bottom line of the story was she came out. We had a great conversation. I showed her how we could actually pull off this housing for the homeless. And she agreed to give us money to start our project. And over the years, 20 years that I was working with the homeless in Wyandanche, Doris became one of my best friends. And we started to socialize together. I met her husband, I met her kids, and we became real friends. And it reminded me of another uh, event that had happened to me when I was training to do community organizing and help the homeless. 
One of the trainers said that nobody's ever your permanent enemy nor your permanent friend. So when you are fighting with somebody, always leave room that perhaps they can become your friend. So love your enemies. Is it possible? Did, uh, did uh, Doris and I become friends? Yes, we did and still are today. And that's a great thing that things can change. Things can develop. You can learn to love your enemies. So this idea of Jesus, where he talks about loving your enemies, there is a possibility. This can happen. This can be brought about. And it's a way of making that happen. So we need to see others as God sees them, as good. Anything that exists does so because God willed it into being, loved it into being. Everything that exists has its own integrity in that which God loves. And God loves it because it is good. It is made by God. So if you see someone as God sees them, you will see them as good. And so you do what God does, you love them. To love another person agapically is to see that person as God sees him or her. Doris was a good person. She was trying to do a job of helping homeless uh, throughout the state. You know, I didn't see that because I was hurt. I didn't like what she had done about us, but I missed the point because I didn't see her as God sees her, as someone who is good. And it took us a while to come together and see that what her good that she wanted to do and the good that I wanted to do, we could do together. So agape love is understanding that I and a you, that I and a you are two very different people, and it takes a lot to bring the I and the you together because we have to recognize that the you is different from the me, from the I. The I-U relationship is one in which I recognize the other as a true other, as somebody who is a mystery to me, not something that I can manipulate or control or absorb into my framework. The other is someone who remains always the other. And one of the big others is God. God and I and you come together and we create this thing called agape love, where we want the good to be happening to the other. Thank you very much. We'll be back. Bye-bye.